Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along for the ride, as always, is a will the thrill. I had a sound here, but I opened my beer, so this is really just the hallmark of poor planning. Hi, everybody! <laughs> it's been quite a quite a week of a day. And it's Tuesday. Yep, it's just Tuesday. And we also have along with us for the ride, Mr. TJ2, the deuce. Oh, that was really... That was um. That was very light. What is that? Yeah. Hold on, wait. Is that better? Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like you're uh... bottle cap. Bottle caps are, are really crappy when it comes to sound effects. It, yeah. I was gonna say, are you opening spam? One of those spam. Spam, 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 spam. Howdy. Jeez. Oh, what is your beverage of choice, sir? Well, again, it's a work night, so I'm going uh pretty light. This is just a hard cider this evening. Uh, I want to be just uh... waiting for him to be like. I'm just drinking Drano. Exactly. <laughs> I got it under the sink, poured it over ice. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's actually not bad. It's actually not bad with you. Mix it with enough orange juice. <laughs> and, and a wedge of lime. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, really quick, guys. I do actually think that I might need to kind of give a warning for this episode, kind of okay. a parental warning for little ears. I got to be honest with you guys. It's been a week. And it's Tuesday. Mm. We weren't joking about that. It's been, it's been hard. We're serious. So I wrote this. I think I finished writing this uh, Saturday, and I already forgot what I wrote. But I feel like it was uh, stuff that kids shouldn't listen to. Is, is that right? I don't I know. That's fair. I let's mean, just yeah. let's just go with that. There's naked people and peyote and porcupine. Uh, no, but good alliteration. Mm. Oh, thank you. Uh, I think it's more of uh, I think of a. A suicide, uh, an attempted suicide, hmm. uh, self-harm, that kind of stuff. So, mm. so it's a trigger warning for for those elements. And uh, other than that, what do you guys have anything, any news that we need to talk about? We have quite luckily skated on having to deliver crippling, sad musician deaths here lately. I, I don't know of any since we last met. Yeah, if you guys happen to hear about anything, please let us know. Because we we really do hate to miss anybody, but I I genuinely don't think nothing's come across my my radar. It's been two uneventful weeks. Yeah, three actually. Three, yeah. Three. Um, yeah, and we can keep that up as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Could you guys not do that? That'd be great. Cool. Um, if, hey, if the uh, if the cool people could stop dying, we would really appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had enough of that last year. And four I, years. Prior. Yep. Four years prior. Four years prior, the massacre of 2016. And when you thought it couldn't get any worse, they took Princess Leia from us. Oh, I mean, jeez, that was a bad year. And that's like, hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. George Michael's dead. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Happy New Year. Yes, on, on Christmas Day. If we're watching VH1 and we're like, why are they showing all George Michael videos? I remember that. Yeah. Let's move on to something just as cheery. 
which is uh, Dusty Springfield Part 2. Hooray! Uh, so the last time we actually talked, we had had an introduction to Dusty and her home life in her early years. Uh, she had already joined and quit the Lana sisters, joined and quit the Springfields, uh, gone off on her own. She was already dealing with rumors about her sexuality, and she had health problems, and she was also deported from South Africa. For some great reasons, though. So. Yeah. Yeah. All really good reasons. Did I did I miss anything uh, big that they should? Uh... I don't I don't think so. But that, that yeah, the whole getting deported thing is kind of a badge of honor considering why it happened. Dude, and, and there was the whole throwing potatoes thing. Remember that? You yes. know what? That's going to come up a lot. Okay. In this uh, this this does that that doesn't stop. Oh, that continues. Okay. That continues for for quite some time. So there's more tater chunking. There's a uh, more tater, more pie. Uh, I think there's some custard. Uh, Flan? just breaking China. I don't know if there's one. <laughs> oh, so let's jump back into Dusty. One thing that we actually haven't spoken too much about at length is her appearance. And I'm, I'm pretty sure even for you guys, <laughs> I love you, but you're not exactly what I would call fashion forward. Oh, what? <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> Do you know the difference between a pedal putter and a Calypso pants? Um, I know that there's some black on one of my socks, and the T-shirt I'm wearing is black, so I think that matches and stuff. I know Calypso has the sound you make with the claws, which rem- reminds me of a crab, which means there are crabs in those pants. You got to check those, get that checked out. Oh, okay. And pedal pusher, pedal pushers. What's your uh, what's your take on pedal pushers? Push the little daisies back them out. <laughs> you sing. I don't me? know why that made me think. Of, it made me think of Wayne. Oh, oh like wow. Well, okay, <laughs> so. Let me catch you guys up. Uh, in the 60s, there was this thing called mod. It was a style, and it was a very much in fashion, and Dusty epitomized that. So mod is kind of like... Is this sort of the Bond girl look? Yeah, kind of, okay. yes. Um, it's uh, bright colors, pencil, straight, skirts, uh, flowers, beehives, all that stuff. Dusty embraced it. She And that, and that was really prevalent in um, her, her native country, correct? Yes, in Britain in the 60s, that was a massive trend. And, and it was also done by someone else we've covered on this podcast, correct me if I'm wrong, was Amy Winehouse, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Hers is actually a little bit more pin-up. Okay. And I would still I would still definitely put her in broad strokes of mod. So. And and someone who is, is not yet, thankfully, not podcast eligible, Rod Stewart. It was called Rod the Mod, correct? Yes, yes. he was. Yep. Yep. And the, the gentleman's mod was really interesting. The female mod is actually something that I like to still wear. I love the vintage stuff. Although I will say pencil skirts are not my thing. Uh, I actually prefer swing dresses, mm. things like that, like the bigger puffier. You know, when you get to be my size, it's uh, better just to have a lot of fabric to fool people. So that's that's how I go. So uh, she always said that the slick black lines that she drew on her eyelids were the resort of her short-sightedness. So uh, if she actually had put the glasses on, she couldn't get the makeup on. But if she took the glasses off, she couldn't <laughs> see to, to do the makeup. But basically, people referred to her as panda eyes. The heavy... Uh... Super black, super dark eyeliner. Dusty said that she always hated the heaviness of her face. And it's true that she had inherited her father's rounder profile than her mother's narrow look. The magazine advice in those days were actually about detracting from the less flattering parts of your looks by emphasizing prettier ones. And usually it was the eyes. Mm. So like my mom always tells me part my hair on the side so it doesn't bring attention to my nose. Thanks, mom. <laughs> you do have quite a honker. <laughs> I, I have. Well, so do you. We have the same nose. 
Sorry. Your, I think yours is bigger. I don't know. No. I always thought my nose was pretty, pretty badass. No, your nose sucks. I've, I've, I've never, it has never occurred to me either of us has a big nose. I don't, <laughs> know, what mom, I don't know what mom's talking about. I, for one, would not make that generalization. Just well, like, you yeah. know, she always says, like, if you part your hair on the side, it doesn't, you know, if you part it down the middle, it's like a straight line to your nose. And then it makes your nose look, your, makes your nose look bigger. So she always said, part oh. your on the side. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. But that that was Dusty's iconic look, the beehive, the the big blonde beehive, the panda eyes, the mod style. Like she knew how to dress for the street and she knew how to dress for the stage. So if you looked at her like just, uh, you know, in normal attire, she was pretty hip for the times. Now, if you saw her stage attire, she actually wore like high collar frills and dresses that almost touched the ground. She knew what looked good. Hmm. That was kind of her style. I've actually seen some of those uh, stage dresses you're talking about. And yeah, they're they're very different from the mod look that you were kind of laying out. Yeah. People were enamored with the blondness of Marilyn Monroe, hmm. which kind of seemed to run parallel to her sexual attractiveness. And other people like Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve who had an enigmatic sophistication, influenced Dusty to make the change to blonde. So she had a ton of wigs. <laughs> so many wigs. So she wore wigs. She wore wigs. Then did she have wigs? All the time. Okay. <laughs> she had wigs that would balance out her jawline, which she thought was far too heavy. And she would just use them to cover up imperfections. So she had like smooth wigs beehive wigs comb over wigs like all these wigs uh i kind of feel like she's more a rose in from schitt's creek <laughs> where she's like get angelic get angelic <laughs> we need to go back to watching that show. Uh, so that show okay so we're gonna rock the clock back and uh, introduce somebody while the Springfields were together and they were touring and the TV appearances had been booked by Imlyn Griffith, an agent and manager who worked at an office in the West End. Okay. He had a, a secretary named Pat who would field all of his phone calls like staunchly. She was great, really hard worker, would book all the flights and any kind of travel was really, you know, just on point. And when Dusty went solo, she thought that Pat would make a perfect secretary she would say, look, Pat, we need this. We need this. We need this. And then they'd go shopping and then they'd have a grand old time. She always knew what they needed and Dusty and her got along really well. It probably wasn't only Pat's efficiency that impressed Dusty. That would be a devoted secretary, fan club organizer, and the most tirelessly loyal person Dusty would ever have around her for the next three decades. Uh, just as a fun fact... Uh, Pat was also a champion speed skater. Huh. I don't have anything to follow that up. She's just a really good secretary and a speed skater. Interesting. Yeah. And apparently a very loyal friend to Dusty. So awesome. Uh, it was at Griffith's office that Dusty finally signed with a new manager. She had to explain to Griff that now that she, that she was going solo, that she would need to be with someone who knew more about the pop world. Because if you guys remember, the Springfields were more like, folky and kitschy and so she needed someone who knew about the pop world uh, someone had recommended a quiet fair-haired man named Vic Billings to Dusty Vic had done some work with Springfield's agent Tito Burns and after she met up with him at Burton Street she asked Pat what she thought of him well Pat said he seems charming good Dusty replied I've just hired him 
there you go. Um, so on January 1st, 1964, she kicked off the year with a bang, releasing her version of Leslie Gore's You Don't Owe Me. So we're going to listen to Les. Well, we're going to listen to Dusty's version of Leslie Gore's song You Don't Owe Me. So the question is, now that we're back, who do you think did it better? Do you think Dusty did it better or Leslie did it better? Uh, hmm. I, th- I mean, it's Leslie Gore's song. So it's, it's Leslie Gore's song. get away from the original. Yeah, I think, though, Dusty does do an iconic version of the song. Yeah, Leslie did it, but Dusty is so iconic that it's almost like she takes the song and makes it her own. Yeah. So, so April 17th, 1964, Dusty finally releases her first album. Because you guys, she hasn't released her first album. That's crazy. <laughs> she just, she's kind of like on the path to Whitney. Like, <laughs> it just took her a really long time to get her well, own. But she, well, she was recording songs and putting out singles, obviously. Yeah, she was putting out EPs and stuff like that. She was with the two other music but, And yeah, she was with the Lawn Sisters and the Springfields, but she wasn't doing her right, own stuff. But she had not, a Dusty Springfield album was still not a thing that existed. Yes, but until April 17th, 1964. The album included what we just listened to, which was You Don't Own Me. It also included Don't You Know by Ray Charles. Mm. I Only Want to Be With You, which uh, we listened to last week. And Will You Love Me Tomorrow, which was... Carol King. Carol King. Yeah. 
uh, and Jerry Goffin. So oddly, at this time, a girl called Dusty was not released to the U.S. market. Instead, Phillips released a compilation of singles and tracks recorded for the album as Stay a While, I Only Want to Be With You. It was named after the first two singles, uh, which had been top 20 hits in the U.S., which is like actually later in 1964. So like I had not heard of that before, but I think it's actually more common practice in like the 90s to have like a European mix and to have an American mix. Was it? I don't remember... Yeah, like the the tracks will the, the tracks will be different. That's one of the reasons that that hardcore collectors and hardcore fans of particular artists would often scour like import bins because they could find yeah. stuff on foreign releases by their favorite artists that were not available in North America otherwise. Yeah, it's kind of like the list that Captain America has oh, yeah, in the Avengers, pocket. and it's different in every country. That's true. They well, they keep some of them the same, correct? Yeah, some of them yeah. are the same, but other things are different. So, uh, so on April 26, 1964, Dusty's U.S. promotional tour begins in Los Angeles instead of the traditional New York City. Hmm. That's actually because she was in Australia before that. This made sense to come over, yeah. Yeah, it made sense to actually come that way instead of coming the other way and starting in New York. So. She actually started in Los Angeles, and that would actually include San Francisco and Seattle. On April 29th, Dusty appeared on the Steve Allen TV show, and I did try to find footage of that specific episode, but I couldn't find it. What I was able to find was another performance and an interview that happened just a few days later, which was on May 3rd, when Dusty would appear on the Dick, Clark, Amer Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Hmm. So I'm actually going to play a clip of that and then the subsequent interview that happened after that, because you actually get to hear the voice of Dusty. So I will play the song first. Uh, yes, this is American Bandstand. So I'm going to play the song first, which is Stay a While. And then directly after that, I will play uh, the short interview that she has with Dick Clark. For the late tuners in, we have Beetle Brushes and winners to select here in this upcoming portion. Our guest of the afternoon will select them, and she's on her way. Joe, why don't you just cut right straight on through here? It'll save a half a second or so. We had her buried in a remote dressing room and took the better part of a day to get her here. As a matter of fact, she is on her way back to her home in England, having just returned from Australia. She's a beautiful gal, has had one of the biggest sellers here in the United States, and if you will, warmly welcome her to our little get-together. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Dusty Springfield.
Dusty Dusty. This is your first visit to Bandstand. Will you join us on our very plush bench here? This is the world's hardest bench, believe me. Yeah, we'll drop in here and sit for a half. You should have seen it before we got the pad. We used to sit on the floor, you know. How many times have, been, have you been here? Um, this is the third time, but I've never been on the West Coast before. Well, I, the, uh, it's an obvious answer, I suppose, because you're coming from Australia? More or less, with a, a stop in Hawaii on the way. Is it nice? Yes, it rained a little, which is surprising, apparently. We always arrive places in the rainy season, you know. You and I have the same kind of luck, I'm afraid. Will you see much of our country before you leave? Uh, well, we, uh, I went to Seattle yesterday. At least I came back from Seattle yesterday. And San Francisco, which is marvelous. I wish we could stay here longer, because there's so much to see, and we keep yeah. dashing around and we don't see anything. You know. Let me ask you a little bit about contrast between your country and ours. Right now in England, uh, what's the number one piece of music? Well, I've been away so long, I'm really not quite sure. I think it's Peter and Gordon, Well Without Love. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing, because so much of your music is popular here now. Uh, would you come back and visit us again when we have more time to take you around and show you the sights? Oh, I'd love to. I want to ask your assistance. That pile of mail over there is for some countrymen of yours. Uh, we got four autographed brushes from Capitol Records. They provided them uh, for us. And this is, a, uh, this is what mail has come in so far. Will you help me select a couple of winners? I wonder who that could be for. I don't know. The Beatles, I'm afraid. Who? The Beatles, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you mean? <laughs> there you are. Dusty, if you will station yourself over there, I'll join you in a moment, all right? Miss Dusty Springfield, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Charles. Well there you are. <laughs> and a program reminder about next week's very special guest, and uh, I think the girls are going to enjoy this. Our special guest next week will be Mike Clifford and Jan and Dean, so how about that? Huh? Good. We'll be back right after this message from Dick. So what did you think? About? Her performance, the interview. You know. Oh, and her performance was good. I mean, you could, she sounded a little sheepish in the interview portion. Yeah. A, a, little, a little shy. Yeah, that, that was actually, I made a note. It was like, you could actually see how kind of aloof and quiet she could be. It almost borders on being camera shy. Yeah, you have this big voice, and then suddenly she sits down. It's and just, she's like, yeah, totally pulled back. Yeah. Yeah, she, just, she fills up the stage as a performer, and then when she, somebody actually wants to talk to her, she was like, uh, yes, we went to Seattle yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Best Dusty impression That's, ever. Yep, my That's brother it. is, you know what, T, you're done being a newspaper editor, all right? You are now going to be a Dusty Springfield impersonator. And Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton. We had a stopover in Hawaii, Governor! <laughs> His multitude of accents. I'm so sorry to the people of Britain. <laughs> the band of a thousand customs. I'm so sorry. DJ Do. Uh, okay, so after her appearance on Dick Clark's American Bandstand, she flew to New York, but her commitment to record with Burt Baccarat fell through because he embarked on a trip to Russia to be a pianist to Marlena Dietrich. Because he's yeah, what? I didn't just like bang on a keyboard. I did say Burt Baccarat embarked on a Russian tour to be a pianist to Marlena Dietrich. Pianist. Pianist. <laughs> it's, I'm sorry, this is what happens P when we record P late at pianist. night, guys. All right, so a couple days later, she appeared live on the Ed Sullivan Show, singing a medley of Stay a While and I Only Want to Be With You. Um, <laughs> funny enough, through a clerical error, Dusty initially had been banned from appearing on the show by the U.S. Labor Department under an existing exchange agreement because she wasn't, quote-unquote, unique enough. Dusty replied, <laughs> Dusty um, replied in all modesty, I am the only Dusty Springfield. And she is correct. <laughs> <laughs>
an error is that? That is a, that's an odd hey, that's a that's that's an odd uh, law or provision. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can come visit, but uh, we have to find you interesting. Yeah, yeah, you so, got sorry. You got to be uh, you got to be good enough. We're going uh, to uh, refer you to the Bureau of Awesome Things, and they'll decide whether or not you uh, have the medal <laughs> that we're looking for. To who heads up the Bureau of Awesome Things? <laughs> yeah, like what's in the Bureau of Awesome Things? Is it like slinkies? And like silly string, and then beer, and then I think for I think the the Bureau of Awesome Things for a long time was chaired by Burt Reynolds. I mean, I can see that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Co-chaired by his mustache. Yeah, that's that's a really that that's a really odd thing to to have just heard you say. Yeah, frankly, I'm sorry. Well, I'm gonna make it better. Real real quick question: her her appearance on uh, Ed Sullivan. What was the date on? The date on that, I believe, it was May 10th, 1964. Uh, so I mean, you're that that's almost exactly right around the same time as the Beatles' historic. It's close, yeah. I see. performance because that was what April or May. Yeah, let me see when it was of, of, of 1964. So those those two are really close to one another. The Beatles on Ed Sullivan were actually February 9th, 1964. So they beat uh-huh. Dusty there, but I think it was probably because she was in Australia at the time. But but that it was but even still, I mean you're talking about a couple of months difference. That's it's all. Close. Yeah, very yeah. close. Yeah. Very close. Yeah. Well, because she they, she was one of the ones that led the charge of the British invasion of, you know, of the 1960s. She was at the helm. She was the woman. So I'm actually going to play that performance on Ed Sullivan. The song's going to be very familiar because it's basically the same song we just played, but it also is with I Only Want to Be With You. So she she does a little bit of a medley, and this is a normal cut song. So uh, here we go. This is the seminal Ed Sullivan performance by Dusty Springfield with Stay A While, I Only Want to Be With You medley.
Okay, we're back. All right. Nice. Thoughts? This, she's a great singer. I mean, with, with an amazing voice that just fills that just just fills the room. It sounds like there's it's, a slight, slight little not. It's not a rasp. I don't know what to call it actually. Husk. There's a little bit of a husky tone to her voice that's really appealing. That really makes her voice stand out and sound a little bit different. And it's interesting how this is again a kind of a bigger voice than I think what you know I in some of the songs that are well known. Dusty Springfield songs I feel like she's almost a little more reserved in those yeah you don't have to say you love me is one of those ones where it's almost like uh, she holds back vocally but you can feel the emotion in her voice mm -hmm. the thing is uh you couldn't see T is that at one point she actually grabs her throat in the in the performance and it's almost like she's trying to hold it together toward the end and knowing what I know about her later you're I, I don't I can't help but wonder if she's starting to have issues with her voice at this point yes even at this point wow. you're gonna see that her health is an issue you can tell though from that that's live that yeah. that is not a recorded track no you can't and you can actually there's a point where she claps mm -hmm. and you can hear the clap come through her mic <laughs> and i'm like that is she's just stunning i just oh i love her mm -hmm. i love her so much hey ld Hate to stop you here, but we are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. And we are back. Excellent. So let's jump back into Dusty. She additionally charted with hits, including Stay a While, like we just played, All Cried Out. And by the end of 1964, Springfield was arguably the biggest solo act in British pop. Wow. Fight me on that. She actually won the first of four consecutive best female vocal honors in NME that same year. She also created a political fervor after she was deported from South Africa for refusing to play um, when she returned in England. Springfield hosted a television special, The Sound of Motown, a show that was widely credited with introducing the sound of young Americans to the British. So ping ponging back and forth mm -hmm. with what we give the British, what the British give us. And she continued racking up smashes like Losing You and You're Hurting Kind of Love and In the Middle of Nowhere. Okay, so we've caught up with where we were last episode. Mm -hmm. So in 1965, among Dusty's friends were Peppy, Madeline, uh, who would actually go on to have six hit records as the lead singer of Blue Mink and married at first a truck driver and then a musician and a friend of Vicky's from Liverpool, which was Stevie Holly. Holly was tall and slim with dark brown hair down to her waist. And she had been the first woman DJ in the country. In Britain? In Britain. And she was only 18 and was seven years younger than Dusty and Vicky. But working in the clubs and her friendship with the Beatles meant that she had a nearly encyclopedic knowledge about obscure soul records huh. as Dusty did, and that impressed the singer. <laughs> Earlier in that year, Steve Holly had become friends with two members of the flamboyant American all-girl group, Goldie and the Gingerbread. Ring any bells? 
Nope. Okay. Nope. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Margaret Lewis and Carol McDonald, the first all-female rock band to be signed to a major label. The foursome had a hit before with Can't You Hear My Heartbeat. They toured with the Kinks and the Rolling Stones. Oh, damn. Yeah. So they were pretty good. Stevie was opposite Goldie and the groups and the Bayswater had often met with them while she was walking her tiny Yorkshire Terrier. So they became friends just like literally how you become friends with people is just walking up to them because they have a dog. Yeah, fair. <laughs> that, that, that makes sense. A, I have no idea what some of the people's names are in our neighborhood, but I know their dogs. You know all the dogs. Yeah. Know, know the dogs. The group split up, and the Goldie's lead singer, whose real name was Gina Raven, went home to her mother in Brooklyn, and Margot and Carol wanted to stay in London. Looking for a new flat, they came across 85 Westbourne Terrace, which just happened to be the same address of one Dusty Springfield. <laughs> so Carol and Margot discovered that people on the other three floors were beginning to move out. And as the flats became available, they got their friends to move in. Hmm. So Margot, Carol, and Stevie took on a large two-bedroom flat with a huge lounge. Below them were a Cockney songwriter, Leapy Lee, shared the basement with a Liverpoolian flatmate, Marie, who went on to marry Justin Hayward of the Moody Bloops. Okay. <laughs> D just paint a picture dusty moved into this place uh thinking oh this is gonna be my sanctuary right. and all of a sudden like people start moving out and like all these musicians and artists start moving in that's funny and i just imagine her being like oh dear <laughs> oh, there it is there it is, it is. There it is. go ahead d do your best impression oh bugger there we go <laughs> Um, her friends would go on to say that uh, Dusty basically gretted it. Gretted it? She, she preferred to be alone. Oh, okay. I want to be alone. Am I? How's my Greta Garbo? Is it good? It's uh, it's getting there. Uh, can I? Can I? You can perfect it. Yeah. I'm gonna work on that. I'm gonna work on that. Uh, she she got real pleasure from being in the bustling household and the musicians that would come in and the writers and the creativity was flowing. So she like, she enjoyed being there, but she did prefer her peace and quiet. And I could kind of get that. You get that feeling from Dusty. Uh, she may have well seen 85 as a sanctuary. The past two or three years of touring had begun to catch up with her and that South American rump rumpus. Yes, I'm, just gonna rumpus. Call, I'm just going to call it a rumpus. Rumpus is a great word. Yes. Uh, had been, particularly traumatic because think about what you have to deal with if you got banned from a country you if you got deported from a country <laughs> like I can't say i've experienced that yeah i don't know if i can go back to canada oh crap i've been to canada yes, you have. <laughs> oh wow canadia oh hey before we do that can i give you a, a quick uh fun fact yeah fun fact, fun fact. or early uh piano player for bobby v yes uh fellow named robert zimmerman you know him better as bob dylan ha Huh. He played piano for, for Bobby V. That's funny. Impressive. Yeah. Interesting. So what everything ever became of that guy. Yeah, I gotta wonder. Bob Dylan? I haven't heard of him. Yeah, yeah, but probably probably nothing. He's filed under history. what LB calls old trucker music. Right. No, he's not. Hmm? No, he's protest. Oh, he's protest. Okay. He's protest he's all the way. Player. He's activism all the way. So now she was out on the road again with Bobby V, someone who she had toured before with. She was slated to do a six-week summer showdown on the coast and the Winter Garden, 
when she collapsed. It had been an exhausting schedule, but it it wasn't one that was not normal for artists in the 60s. Hmm. It seemed like it was a machine. Like you ran and you ran and you ran until you collapsed. And that's what happened. She always that's said- That's part of the reason so many of those those people got hooked on pills and stuff back then. Yeah. Because gonna... in a lot of cases, I, I don't I don't know about her, but you know, a lot of the- a lot of the country artists in particular, like they had to drive themselves to concerts and their, their management and promoters would pay no mind to like, yeah, so you're playing in Miami Monday and then you'll uh, be in Amarillo, Texas Tuesday. Yeah, see you there. And so they had to drive themselves. So they never slept. So they, they, they did pills to stay awake and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, no, it was not uncommon at all for labels, management, whoever to just completely abuse artists at that point. Yeah, they didn't care. They did not. It was just get that, get the machine running. Get that money. She had always said that she loved being on stage and everybody who knew her knew that to be true. But the effort of getting there and getting it perfect was absolutely draining. And I can't stress this enough. We're going to talk about it later, especially with her stuff when it comes to the Pet Shop Boys, how how much of a perfectionist she actually was. Hmm. Down to the syllable. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating with this. Uh, I'll explain it a little bit later. But uh, in 19, we've, we've moved on. And to- the other thing in her case is if she if she's playing two shows a day, as you said they had her doing at some point, your vocally, you just can't keep doing that for very long. No, no. you're going to be fried. Especially, especially if, unless you just have complete vocal rest every other minute of the day. Like, literally, you don't talk, and then you sing, you know, you're at your two shows, and nobody's going to do that, and you have to get enough rest and hydrate and not smoke not drink booze and i don't know if she was doing any of that stuff at this point or not but like that's that's not a pace a vocalist can even keep up for very long no, no. well that's you you look at mariah carey she was doing all those shows and you know they had the vegas thing and then she collapsed and people were like oh it was quote unquote emotional exhaustion no like legitimately you have to put yourself out there i can't even imagine what it would be like being a pop star today you know it because yeah you have people that are there to protect you now when it comes to you know getting you there safely making sure you have enough rest but like then you have to deal with the public mm-hmm. and so it's i don't think it's ever been easy for a musician i won't say it's easy in the 60s because they would run you ragged and now you got to deal with the fact that you're all over social media yeah they'll still run you ragged yeah they'll still well that's why it's it's really interesting if you ever see like the K-pop stars, like the K-pop stars will literally just pass out on the stage yeah, because they have just been run into the ground. I just, I feel bad for people. So in 1965, Springfield reached the UK top 40 with three hit singles. You're hurting kind of love in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the Carol King, Jerry Coffin penned some of your loving, which actually hit number eight. And that was one of the highest ones. Middle of nowhere also hit number eight. None of them was included on her UK album that was recorded with the Echoes, which is Everything's Coming Up Dusty. That was released in October of 1965, and the LP features songs by you know, Anthony Newley, Rod Argent, Randy Newman, and Randy Newman. a cover of the traditional Mexican song, La Bamba. I was wow. not joking when I said that last episode. No, and I thought episode. you were. Yeah, no, wasn't joking when I said that oh, last wow. episode. Uh, in November 1965, the album peaked at number six on the UK chart. Springfield's one appearance on the Billboard Hot 100 
was in 1965 with Losing You, and it actually stalled at 91, which is a total bummer. But from the 28th to the 30th of January 1965, Springfield took part in the Italian Song Festival in San Remo, reaching the semifinals with What Do You Know? While failing to qualify for the finals during the competition, she heard the song Iochin Non Vivo. I probably butchered that. I'm sorry. Uh, it was performed by one of its composers, Pino Finaggio, and separately by U.S. country singer Jody Miller. And an English version was called You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. It would feature newly written songs by Springfield's friend and future manager, Vicki Wickham, which, by the way, I didn't tell you guys this at the beginning. The book that one of the books that I draw the most inspiration from was a book called The Authorized Biography of Dusty Springfield, Dancing, Dancing with Demons. And that was actually written by Penny Valentine and Vicki Wickham. Oh, wow. So it wasn't just her future manager. It's also her future biographer. So that's why I kind of trust this book. <laughs> now, um, another future manager, Simon Naper Bell, also co-written it. Now, this is in reference to how she actually recorded the song. There, standing on the staircase at the Phillips studio, singing into the stairwell, Dusty gave her greatest performance ever. Perfection. From first breath to last, as great as anything by Aretha Franklin or Sinatra, or Pavarotti. Great singers can take mundane lyrics and fill them with their own meaning. This can help license a listener's own ill-defined feelings come clearly into focus. Vicky and I had thought our lyrics were about avoiding emotional commitment. Dusty stood it on its head and made it a passionate lament of hopelessness and love. And that was written by Simon Naper Bell in flashback Dusty Springfield, The Observer, October 19th, 2003. So Dusty's dynamic recording of the ballad was released in 1966 and reached number one in the UK in its fifth week on the singles chart. Success followed in the US where it reached number four in July on Billboard's Hot 100s, ranking at 21 for the year. Springfield called it a good old schmaltz. <laughs> and that up to that point became her signature song. In 1967, Dusty Springfield was nominated for the Best Contemporary R&R Solo Vocal Performance, male or female, awarded at the ninth annual, I said that right, ninth annual yes. Grammy Awards, <laughs> losing nice. to Paul McCartney for Eleanor Rigby. Oh. Yeah. In 1999, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me featured all-time top 100 songs as voted for by the listeners of the BBC, the BBC Radio 2. So now I am going to play BBC one, BBC two, BBC three. All right. I'm going to play. You don't have to say you love me by the beautiful Miss Dusty Springfield. Change but you and now you've gone. 
God, it's such a good song. That is a great one. Awesome. Chills. Like, you can... And, and the little review you read ahead of that is actually really apt. Because if you actually listen to the lyrics, it's just kind of there. <laughs> really. It's what she does with them. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> makes, that makes that song what it is. Yeah. And it's you can hear the emotion in her voice where it's almost like desperation of like, literally, you don't have to say you love me. Just be near me. You don't have to stay forever. I get it. Like, just let me just be around you. Yeah. Like, oh, God. Oh. Okay. I have a fun fact for you guys. Fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. Dusty's song, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, was actually chosen to be featured on J.W. Pepper's top 40 best songs from the 50s to the 70s alongside Manford Man's Earth Band's Blinded by the Light. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Our federally mandated (laughs) Manford Man's Earth Band reference of the podcast has been satisfied. That's fantastic. And the lawyers will be calling any day now. I'm yep, and I just I, I want to make the satisfied part just skeevier and skeevier every week. <laughs> yep. and, and you succeed at that. You do really and well. I'll, I'll need one of I'll need one of you to take up the uh take up the, the torch and run with it in the next series. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, again. it's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, you don't know, I could be really creepy. I, I believe it. Yeah. Um, I will tell you guys that that, that reference was so much harder to just I was like trying to find stuff because last week was so organic it just worked it was just there it was awesome um this one i literally yelled to will i was like hey honey if i just yell out manford man's earth band in the middle of the episode does that work i I said sure Um, yeah as long as as long as we as long as we uh, mention it i think we're good yeah okay okay good 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 all right, so on July 13th, 1965, Dusty was actually ordered to take a complete rest by her doctor. So everything was canceled. She had a six-week engagement with Russ Conway, which was canceled due to this, as well as, interestingly enough, you know, she was actually replacing Kathy Kirby, who you might remember as the woman who beat her out for best female vocalist the two years prior. So she's supposed to go on tour replacing Kathy Kirby? Yes. Okay. Yes, from what I understand, she was she was actually replacing Kathy Kirby. Okay. So, does he spent ten days recuperating in the Virgin Islands? It's a good place to do it. Not, not a terrible place to go. And then, feeling restless, she moved on to America, where she met up with her friends in California, and then went to Arizona, and then flew back to New York. Um, so, on September the nineteenth of nineteen sixty five. I just don't know what to do with myself was scheduled for release in the U.S. and copies were pressed, but the single was immediately withdrawn. So I don't know. I tried to find any scrap of evidence or reasons why that would happen. I could not find it. I've not. Yeah, it's really odd because the copies were pressed. But can you imagine if that actually didn't get released, how much those would be worth today? Oh, a ton. I mean, yeah. In 1965, she decided to go out on holiday with her friends, Madeline and Tom and Vic. And they rented a an apartment on the Spanish coast. Now, this was days before mass tourism hit in on, on this beautiful coast. And so they were just able to unwind, unplug, drink their sangria, <laughs> and hang out. And they had just been soaking up the heat and eating, drinking, and hanging out. And one of those days, Vic took Madeline's bikini bottoms and hoisted them to the top of the flagpole on the apartment's uh, roof. You scamp. Yeah, so uh, Madeline was slightly miffed 
at the sight of her swimsuit, which was unattainable, <laughs> and the fact that uh, Dusty was having a giggling fit at the sight of her friend's, you know, bottoms were waving in the wind. <laughs> now, fun fact, uh, fun fact. Not, fun not, fact. Ac- not actually fun fact. No, not fun fact. Um, fun fact. Uh, a little while later, the Spanish guards, Gradera, mm-hmm. I think that is, were actually uh, knocking on their door and uh, politely let them know that the that only the Spanish flag was allowed to fly and nothing should be added to detract from its noble image. Oopsie poopsie. So in other words, take down the effing pants. You're being disgraceful. Take down your underwear. <laughs> yeah, take down your panty drawers. <laughs> Get them drawers down. On Friday nights, the entire household would return from Ready, Steady, Go. I should uh, point out that you know, Dusty is still doing presenting at Ready, Steady, Go. She's still performing. And then basically the entire household worked there. <laughs> so this whole flat just worked there. So Margot, Madeline, uh, they would create a spaghetti supper in the basement where Leapy Lee and Marie lived. And in those days, uh, there was always marijuana. Shocker! pearl clutching <gasps> ah, and someone had to take on the task of rolling the communal joints so along with they this were smoking we, marijuana cigarettes they were smoking <laughs> i hate to tell you they were taking in the pot i am a cat they had the weed the ganja yeah the green guy yeah the uh, tobacco side note mom says that she never smoked weed but she did go to a big brothers and the holding company concert found yeah. that out the other day mm-hmm which was weird. Along with this was the most sophisticated wine for London trendsetters. And uh, that was Mateus Rose. Um, Apparently it was like a super cheap wine that was like pink, but it gets you drunk. So they would have it. Uh, Margot Madeline would make this huge pot of spaghetti and there would be grape sauce. And the idea was that they would just sit around and drinking and singing and playing the guitar and smoking and now, puffing the magic dragon <laughs> pretty much how delightfully bohemian. why do you think the movie the music was so good because i got high <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the music was really good because they were stoned so one evening dusty had already given to the dramatic entrance arrived at the top three stairs that led down to steve's lounge she said I have decided to commit suicide. Uh, Margot, Carol, and Stevie, who had been sitting on the floor, looked it up, looked up at her, bemused. And before anyone could move, Dusty had come down the three steps, slipped on a glossy album, and landed flat on her back. Jeez. There was this awful moment of silence, and then everybody started laughing. And Dusty was giggling so much that she cried with laughter. She could see how the whole thing was ridiculous. But later on, people would find out that her half-hearted suicide attempt had consisted of two glasses of wine and half a Valium. Mm, that won't kill you. No, but... But you'll go to sleep. But... Yeah. By 1966, Dusty had more hit records than any other female in the world. Wow. Yeah. In less than two years, the song Stay a While, I don't. I just don't know what to do with myself, losing you, some of your loving, in the middle of nowhere, and little by little, all had shot up the British top 20. She had done a three-month sold-out package uh, touring with her songs Wishing and Hoping, I Only Want to Be With You. Those had been huge hits in America, while her album A Girl Called Dusty and Everything's Coming Up Dusty had given her hits on both sides of the Atlantic. So she is she is one of the greatest 
She's a, a she's a really she's a she's a really big deal right now. She is a very big deal. On par with almost any of her British contemporaries. Yeah, and with about one, maybe one exception. Uh, the Beatles. Yeah. 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 Well, they're still there. Yeah, they're still there. Actually, I know that you've never seen this movie, but I might make you watch it, T, during like Christmas or something, because it's a great it's a great movie called Yesterday. Oh yeah. And uh, it's Fun. what if the Beatles never existed. But no, only one guy remembers. But them. one guy remembers them and all their songs. So he sets out to write all the Beatles songs, and he becomes famous because of it. Yeah. It's a it's a really good movie. So apart from her appearances on Ready Steady Go, she was featured in a TV special with Burt Bacharach, and the Royal Variety Show gathered a clutch of awards as Britain's best female vocalist. Dusty actually did something that that nobody had really done up to this point. She was actually kind of a pioneer because she was featured in a TV ad for a campaign for the Mother's Pride Sliced Bread. Now, this thing is so bananas that I just I just have to show it to you. So I'm going to pull that up because it is a it's the best thing since sliced bread. I'm a happy knocker upper and I'm popular beside because I wake them with a cuppa and tasty mother's pride. Then they wrap in a flash and a rush. It's the bread. And a dash and a push. It's the bread. With a flash and a dash and a rush and a push. Like I said, it's the bread. It's the mother's pride bread. It makes them love work. They're going berserk to get off to work. It's in the way I wake them by bringing to the side the bread we freshly bake them. Fantastic mother's pride. All righty. Well, it, it's ridiculous. It is so weird. Uh, I want you to look that up later, T. Uh, I will. That, that's, I, I would say this, folks had some interesting ideas about what would move product in the <laughs> 1960s. Yeah. The ad wizards are... Uh... Oh. My, my, my favorite was always like they would have popular athletes. It'll be like Jackie Robinson or somebody like... Jackie Robinson smokes Chesterfield cigarettes. Nothing says endurance and lung power for today's athlete. Quite like Chesterfield yeah it's pretty amazing <laughs> what? did you just fart <laughs> no i snorted <laughs> yeah uh they oh yeah ads from the like 50s and 60s were weird and now jumping back into her private life more stories were starting to circulate mainly about her eccentric behavior and how she would throw you know custard or lemon meringue pies or whole dinner servings glasses anything that would make noise or a mess dusty's throwing episodes began to overtake any interest in her voice can you even imagine that how bad would it be yeah she just kind of looked at like oh she's a zany character and that 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 zany yeah because like think about it uh tom green do you know anything about tom green other than he's a weirdo he married your barrymore yeah but because he's a weirdo he's a weirdo I love Drew Barrymore, by the way. And for those those who who don't remember from the first episode, this is learned behavior. This is is how her mother behaved at at home. This is what she grew up, this is what Dusty grew up seeing and thinking, I guess everybody just uh, flings taters at one another. And that's the way it is. Yeah, there's a story about how um, Dusty, like one of her roommates was going away for Christmas. And so Dusty had her whole family over and was like, hey, since you have a bigger kitchen, can I use your kitchen to make Christmas dinner? And she did. And then when her friend came back, the place was like suspiciously clean, like weirdly clean. And 
uh, there would be like a smell or something. And then she would find Brussels sprouts behind the radiator. Nah. <laughs> so like the whole, back there? Yeah, the whole family would just like, ping, ding, just off the wall, just chucking all the food. And so, yeah, she would be like, she would find food for months in like the we- like in the cracks of the <laughs> windows and stuff like that. So, you know, the the voice was what got her where she was and now they had to figure out how to use her name to sell papers. So it was just like, look how wacky she is. Right. She throws food. Like I've always hated the paparazzi and you guys know that. I just despise them. So, get a get get an actual job, kids. Sorry. You could be a headshot photographer and make a ton of money. Yeah, you can. So it's about this time that Dusty brought her first real home, like her actual first home that she was able to purchase with her own money. And she now shares that with Norma uh, Tenega. Uh, Norma Tenega was an American folk and pop singer, songwriter, painter, experimental musician. And in the 60s, she had a hit single with Walking My Cat Named Dog and wrote... So she actually would go on to write. So she had the hit single with Walking My Cat Named Dog. And she would actually write singles for Dusty and other prominent musicians. In later decades, Tanega worked mostly with a, you know, as a percussionist, playing various styles of music in bands, Baboons, Hybrid Vigor, and Ceramic Ensemble. So oh, there's, a, there's a couple. Of ceramic Ensemble, is, that's a terrible name. That is, that's. It's not Terry Webb and the Spiders bad, but it's getting pretty close. Eternal triangle level of a... Yes. I just think it's funny that she joined a band that was the name of something that Dusty would break. (laughs) Right. Ensemble. That's pretty bad. That's... Yeah. She's also known for You're Dead, the theme song to What We Do in the Shadows. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yes, we... It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. uh, No, it's the TV show. Oh, not the film. Which we haven't seen. We haven't watched that. But the film is oh my god t you would actually love the film what we do in the shadows uh it is about vampires but it's very funny it's a mockumentary about vampires it's a it's uh fantastic and it stars one of my favorite people taika waititi pouring out one for me yes he did for dusty norma's background of arts and politics was an additional bonus appeal of being a west coast woman whose laughter was infectious and i actually watched like a little mini documentary on norma and she just had this huge smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were actually, the filmmakers were actually in the middle of making a documentary when Norma passed away. So that was all they had of it. Mm-hmm. They were able to create like a five minute uh, short documentary series about her life. But like, she just had this huge smile and she just looked happy, you know? So Norma had been an early campaigner against the American war in Vietnam and her paintings were these huge huge massive paintings canvases covered in mythological creatures and plants and it was just she had art running through her blood they had first met in manchester they were working on an appearance for the lightweight pop tv show thank your lucky stars hmm. they had some great names for tv shows in the 60s they really did and it's kind of faded away yeah we don't have we don't have that those good names anymore in the studio norma was watching dusty go through rehearsals She said, I'm standing there with my guitar like a dork while this woman, I had no idea who she was, was just going over the song until it was perfect. And all of a sudden the lights went off in the studio and Norma was so confused. So she went over to Dusty and asked her why the lights went out. 
and Dusty explained the English tradition of a union tea break for the electricians and cameramen, and they sparked up a conversation. Uh, Norma was enthralled, and she thought Dusty was witty and flirty and questioned how you could not love her. Nonetheless, Norma had to go back to America, and Dusty's phone bill soared. (laughs) Finally, she flew over and... They met in the lobby of a hotel in New York. It had been months since they had seen each other, but they were both so apprehensive that they stood facing each other like a stranger. And then, you know, even Dusty, who was like not normally, you know, bold or, you know, one to step forward was like, God, this is stupid. And then just like ran over to her. So (laughs) one day in 1966, Dusty sat down and wrote out a shopping list. It might be apocryphal, but according to everyone who was around at the time, the story goes that the grocery list that Dusty wrote out read, buy bread, buy milk, buy house. Huh. Well, yeah. You know, there's a couple steps before that, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it took a while for the house to get to where Dusty was happy in it. Uh, She and Norma worked out a kind of deal. Like Norma, because she was an artist, kind of took on decorating. And so she would be in charge of the operations and things went smoothly enough. The top floor of the three-story house was turned into a workspace. Uh, Here was Dusty's trunk of sheet music that was being sent by other songwriters who admired her voice. And she also had this huge built-in, what I like to call my my dream, uh, is a wardrobe for her clothes. Okay. And you guys remember like Dusty has those two personas when it comes to clothes. She's got like the mod style when she's just hanging out, but then she's got her stage clothes. Mm-hmm. So I think those were kept in two separate places, which is kind of my dream. So, you know, thing is we're going to be buying a house soon. You should really just go ahead and find a five bedroom house. So I have one that's just for mm-hmm. my pants. Okay. Um, <laughs> Norma- so, okay. I have a question. So, okay. So yeah. you said Norma's an artist. Now, I know you had mentioned that she was a folk musician. Was she an artist on top of that? Yes. She was, uh, yeah, she actually had a studio for painting, though it would actually take a couple years before she had time to get back to her own work. But yeah, she did a ton of stuff. She did uh, art. She did music. uh, She did activism and stuff. And so she's really well-versed in like politics, policy and things like that. So she was a really well-rounded kind of person. Okay. Yeah. Um, The next was, next floor was Dusty's bedroom and she had a king-size bed and a mirrored wall. Now, I don't know. I couldn't, I didn't find a picture of it, but I can only imagine that it's one of those mirrored walls with like the orange cracks through it. You know what I'm talking about? trying to picture i don't know if i can t do you know what i'm talking about with like the glass and there's it's in the amityville horror house really it's like glass and it's got you know stuff all in it like you can't clean it it's <laughs> a mess uh well I, that's what i'm picturing and i'm not picturing it as like pure clean glass i'm picturing it as like the 1960s 1970s glass mm. uh she had a king-size bed in the mirrored wall and leaving off she had a makeup space <laughs> with a wall that was just lined in gowns that she was currently using for tours and tv appearances so she could pack them up easy select them if she was going to be doing something local you know that kind of stuff Uh, everything was paid into dusty's favorite colors which was pink or like whitney houston and prince the color purple they did more purple they did and and whitney houston um oh whoopie whoopie like uh, well she was in the color purple she was in the color purple (laughs) 
I, I see what you did there. And so was uh, so was Oprah. Yep. Good job, T. Hey, thank you. The ground who floor. Can't be, hey, who can't be topical? <laughs> I can reference movies as long as they're like 30 years old. Best text from my brother was Shawshank Redemption. Or Tombstone. Or Tombstone are yeah. starting at 10 o'clock and I'm torn. <laughs> like, well, well, seriously, that's like the two best movies ever. <laughs> I mean, arguably. Arguably. I love Tombstone, though. That is such a good movie. You don't like Shawshank? I do love Shawshank. It's just I've seen Tombstone, I think, more. Mm. Uh, between the two of you guys, I think I've seen it more. Uh, so downstairs was more mundane. Uh, things like the kitchen and the reception room. But that's where the parties took place. Ah, yes. Now, oh, yeah. I'm not going to go into you know real detail about these parties. They were the 1960s parties. Use your imagination, kids. The music was loud. The people were famous. And it was all kinds of a normal affair. But occasionally after midnight, someone would say, oh, no, Dusty's in the kitchen. And any sane person would immediately vacate the premises if they did not want to be covered in whatever was sitting on the counter at the time. She would grab pies, the dinner service. And she uh, she had especially bought this dinner service from like the Lending London Company store. And Gene Pitney could be seen crouching behind a chair trying to protect his sharp little Italian designer suit from harm. The Vandellas might be hitting each other over the head with French bread. And Dusty often thought it was hilarious that the quietest of people that she knew would be the ones that loved splashing around in the broken bread and the chocolate and the meringue and whose deepest frustration seemed to be released at Dusty's chaotic events. So honestly, this was like cathartic, but like, could you... Like Martha and the Vandellas is in your kitchen beating the crap out of each other with French bread baguettes. I just picture a very similar scene to the blood rain and blade, except it's people throwing potatoes. Yeah. And, yeah. The techno's going off. And yeah, exactly. And just like, <laughs> again, French bread baguettes lofting over the top. <laughs> I kind of look at it as like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you know, when the kids first like get released into it and they're like eating it but it's just Dusty throwing it. I just like the warning of, oh no, Dusty's in the kitchen. <laughs> That's my Terry Jones, everybody. I'm so sorry, guys. So, uh, you know, we well established that Dusty's throwing of food is pretty much standard fare <laughs> at this point. Anybody who knew her knew it was happening. So there was one night in September of 1966, Stanley Drank, the assistant manager of the restaurant GPO Tower in central London, would actually be the recipient of a well-aimed bread roll <laughs> to the back of his head after Dusty felt like he was hassling her waiter enough. So like she's at dinner at like a really nice restaurant and she just wangs the dude in the head. She's highly skilled to call that shot. She really is. She should have been a pitcher for like the angels or something. Dusty just said, I hate waiters being pushed around. Usually the throwing was done with more foresight. I get very easily bored, she would always say. <laughs> so you get bored and throw stuff. It's hilarious. I'm just going to start. I'm going to pick that up. Are you okay with that? Throwing things? Yeah, I'm just going to chuck stuff at your head. I'm just going to chuck stuff at your head. Don't worry, it'll be soft. Oh, and probably tasty. Mm. Okay. By the summer of 1966, Dusty got her own BBC series. She was given the opportunity to, say, to sing anything that she wanted to. And she got to choose her on guests. You got like you guys understand how big that is, right? She got to choose her what? She got to choose her own guests. Oh, nice. So she could sing whatever she wants. She could choose her own guest. She sang unaccompanied folk songs and a little jazz with Dudley Moore. She also sang Burt Backright songs. Dudley Moore? Yeah. <laughs> 
she sang with Tom Jones. She goofed, she goofed around with Woody Allen. And in a revolutionary move, she used one of her stalwart stage numbers, Mockingbird, as a duet with the Jimi Hendrix. Are you going to play this? I'm going to play this. Yes! Okay? Uh, I'm going to get ready to blow your collective minds, guys. Here is... Dusty Springfield with Jimi Hendrix doing Mockingbird. Now, there's a little bit, I think, of an intro to it where they, they talk to each other mm-hmm. and they kind of goof around. And the quality is not that great. So I do apologize, but I felt like this is really important for us to, to listen to. Hey, what you been doing, Jim? Yeah, we've been working on our LP. We just came off this Italian tour, you know. Yeah? We're tearing playing. a place up. Well, you know. We did our thing, whichever that is. Something, yeah, great. We were supposed to do a duet now, and you can pick any number you want, provided you pick Mockingbird. Great, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to do Mockingbird. So what's up? What do we think? Hearing those voices together is just surreal. Yeah. Just, oh. it, it, I, I, the thing I wonder is, um, you know, there was a time when you, it, like LD, you and I would be like awake late at night and they're, they're selling v, you know, collections of VHS tapes of the Dean Martin show. Yes. Right? And, and if I actually have the Johnny Cash show. Um, Wow. On, on DVD, which, which is really, really good. I, I don't think I've ever seen one for Dusty, and I'm wondering, I'm trying to sit here and wonder why. Huh. I mean, if, if, if she had guessed that cool, like, like, hey, I've got Dudley Moore and Jimi Hendrix tonight. I know. <laughs> like, like, okay, well, I've seen the ones for, you can, you can go buy the, 
Dean Martin collection and the Johnny Cash collection and the Smothers Brothers collection. Like, where's the dusty one? Yeah, it's it. The problem is that I feel like people don't understand how important Dusty was. And to this day, she's still kind of been pushed down. Like you're, you're going to hear a song later on that she's famous for. But the fact is like, I don't, I don't think a lot of people know exactly how prolific and how important Dusty was to the musical landscape. Yeah. They're on the whole story. Yeah. And I mean, she was I, a big enough deal that she had a, a TV show in her, her, her native country. And it sounded like from what you were saying, they, they wanted her to be doing it bad enough that she had total creative control, which is yeah. not something they would have given up readily back then. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine what kind of talent and poise that takes to to maintain that kind of trust and not have it be made. Yeah, but also that she was a big enough deal that they're like, yeah, we, we want we, we want you hosting a program so badly that uh, it's yours. Anybody <laughs> you want to have on, anything you want to do. Yeah, she was singing a cappella folk songs and then talking to Jimi Hendrix. I mean, like, if you want to fling like cans of cheese whiz at Engelberg Humperdinck, but be our guest. We would love that. <laughs> Please tell me that's recorded somewhere. Oh, God, I hope God, so. I, God, I hope so. <laughs> Look out, Jerry Dorsey. Here it comes. <laughs> yep. Santa, are you going to get my letters? <laughs> All right, so um, on October 30th, 1966, Dusty released the golden hits in the U.S. That album includes a song that I want to play right now because I really do love it, and uh, it's called Little by Little. So we're going to listen to that. And uh, yes, T, we do have a couple of songs in the back end because mm -hmm. she's just like, her catalog is so incredible and diverse, and people might not even know that they're listening to Dusty Springfield when they hear these songs. In your back end. Oh, you? Okay, so here we go. This is Dusty Springfield, Little by Little.
All right. I mean, great have, song. Yeah. Have you guys heard the song prior to this episode? I have not. I, I can't say that I have actually. Oh well, then I'm glad I opened it up to you guys because. Yeah. Uh, no. No. That's. I'm glad you picked that one because it was really, really good. Nice. Yeah, and it's got one of my favorite inflections when she goes the little by little, bit by bit, and there's just <laughs> something that she does with her vocals, and it's just, I I don't know, it, it catches my attention every time I hear it that way. Well, and actually, she doesn't even say little. It, she pronounces it like L-I-Y-Y-L, like Lil. Lil, Lil yeah. Lil. Lil by Lil by Lil. Mashing those consonants into another vowel. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Delightfully so. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm, I, but a lot, I'm, but you know, a lot of really good singers do that. They don't really clearly enunciate. Yeah. It's true. It's well, I mean, true. let's be honest. Kurt Cobain, uh, Van Morrison. I don't know what the hell they're singing most. Eddie Vedder. <laughs> but they're great. Oh my Eddie God. Vedder. Blur? I I defy you to tell me one one word that's in Yellow Lead Butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. It's that's the thing though. Is is a lot of times it's just there's something in a song that hits you, even if they aren't enunciating. It's just something that like stirs your attention. You're like, I love that. It just it, with her, it just sounds like it comes from such a soulful place. Oh it, yeah, it does, and that's most I, everything she does is just very, very, very soulful. That I mean, not which, which, but but if you looked at her in 1966 or whatever year we're talking about, you're like, oh wow, she that's her really. It's <laughs> probably what you would have thought. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is like with her with her vocals and the backing music she's really picked up on the Motown sound. Yeah, You can agreed. really hear that influence of that Detroit sound. So, you know, that's that's a big thing. And, and Dusty would always honor that commitment by like put, putting a spotlight on those artists. Yeah. So, I mean, she's she's just a queen. <laughs> I, I, this is, I feel like the first time I've really ever fanned over someone <laughs> other than uh, Freddie Mercury. Like, I think that's the only person I have ever hero worshipped on this podcast other than, you know, Dust Dusty is the one. Yeah. So I'm fangirling. I love her. I don't care. So months later in 1966, guess what comes out? The NME polls. They're published. Dusty appears in the following categories. She is the first place in the world female singer category. She is first place in the British female singer category third place place in the British vocal personality category, which she was beaten by Cliff Richards and John Lennon, just oh, wow. as a point. And she got best British disc that year. And that was with, you don't have to say you love me. And she came in fourth place in that category. So, well, damn. yeah. So she is. Well, you left one category off. I did a little research on this myself. Oh yes. What was that? She came in first place and least likely to play bass for Manfred Bass. <laughs> <laughs> I know we already did it, but uh, it's, it's, you know what? Was she okay. first though? I mean, maybe. Definitely met the requirement this time. <laughs> and this is where the show goes off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't already. <laughs> well, if, if okay. you'd like to give us money and you're doing a good job. <laughs> Still not saying our website. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. So on December 23rd, 1966, until February 4th, 1967, she opened up in something that I was really happy I finished reading the sentence for, which was the Mary King Cole, which was a pantomime in Liverpool Empire. 
what does that even mean? So it, it was originally scheduled to end on the 25th of February, but it closed early. Now, it should be stated that Dusty did not appear in the actual pantomime, but did have a spot doing singing. Was that David Bowie doing the pantomime? <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> I mean, How weird would that be? The timing would be correct. So is this like a is this like an early rendition of of uh, like putting on the hits? <laughs> yeah, it might have been. I don't. The sixties were weird. And this was was, was his... put on the hit. Was putting on the hits the one where you got up and danced and like lip sync to songs? Was it? I don't remember I don't this. Remember? Yeah. There were a couple of shows like I, th- I think it was putting on the hits. You can look it up later. I'm almost sure yeah. that, that was a TV show in the eighties. But perhaps this... hosted by Danny Oterio or somebody. <laughs> This, this was definitely before David Bowie broke on the scene with his breakout smash, Uncle Arthur. So. Oh, Uncle Arthur and and uh, a uh, lengthy mime routine opening yeah. for somebody. For, for T-Rex. For T-Rex, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to bang a gong in just a minute, but first of all, but before that, here's a guy who's uh, going to kind of be quiet for like 15 straight minutes. <laughs> Walk against the wind. It'll hope, be riveting. Yeah, I hope y'all, hope y'all dig it. He's, uh, he's in a, uh, a box that's shrinking. And now a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> bang of gold <laughs> all right so in 1967 dusty was booked for a tour of australia she wanted to treat norma and it was the one time norma would actually stop protesting about how much something would cost and actually went with her uh the trip took a better part of an exhausting two and a half days so getting to australia took two and a half days back then i guess that makes sense yeah because you go from england i'm assuming probably stop over in asia and then make another flight yeah that'd be that'd be horrible yeah well it yeah so when she got to australia of course she's exhausted she's been traveling for two and a half days Mm -hmm. like who wants to be bothered and apparently on this trip the paparazzi you know my favorite people uh came out in force and apparently she was seen as dodging the paparazzi and people are like that was so rude that was so rude why why would you do that she's like i'm tired yeah, i just alone. let me let me get organized and then i'll talk to everyone but she had been to australia once before which was in 1964 as part of a pop package that included uh during the pacemakers brian Poole and the american singer gene pitney um and i think dusty actually mentioned going to australia when she was talking to dick clark in that uh piece that we played she I think did, she did. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, she did. Yeah, because, and, that, and that's why she played L.A. on the way back. Yeah, she yeah. stopped over in Hawaii and then played in L.A., and that's why she would start, like most people start in New York. She actually started in Los Angeles. It did not, her trip there did not start well. The moment that she landed on Tuesday, uh, she was besieged by John Law's office at Radio 2. Uh, Laws had already established himself as the most famous DJ in Australia. Even in 1967, he was not just a man who played records, but someone whose opinions could influence the most powerful politicians in the country. I, I look at him as maybe somebody like a modern podcaster, like Joe Rogan. Okay. Somebody like that. Or uh, like me. Uh, yeah. Close. Yeah. Very close. Yeah. You're almost Joe Rogan. And, and so interestingly, I, I, I'm going to assume that radio stations in Australia just have a number. Because I've actually heard of Radio One in Australia, and you just said there. You just mentioned this was a DJ on Radio Two. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 
when his office was told that Dusty could not go into the studio to be interviewed at that very moment because she had gone to bed, he was incensed. Like, he was super upset that she wouldn't come and, like, bend to his will. Nobody ever told him that he would have to wait, and he certainly wasn't going to take that from a lady from England. But by the afternoon, Law's secretary was ringing Dusty's Australian record company to ask if she could go on the party line later that night. No, she was told. But Dusty would be free to do it on Thursday. He was furious. So he immediately got on the air and railed against Dusty. Thursday would not be convenient with him since by that time he'd have a star on the show. He told his assistant to throw Dusty's records in the garbage can. (laughs) So, so, I mean, so he's just a dick. Yeah. Yeah, but hold on. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm sitting there listening to absorbing this. I'm like, yeah, this this guy's just a really pretentious dick. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And uh, but Australians became fascinated by this Lost Springfield saga, which continued over the next 48 hours. <laughs> um, under siege, the opening night for the fans for the late show were queued up around the block before the first show finished. So, like the first show was going on, and before that one even ended, people were already like around the block waiting to see her second show. So I don't think this really hurt. (laughs) It may have helped. So that show was the start of the Australian love affair with Dusty and hers with Australia. She would find it ironic that 30 years later, Laws was hit by the cash for comment scandal that was later revealed that he received payment from several large organizations for mentioning on the air, which if you guys kind of remember, that's like Paola in America. Same thing. Yeah, so he got wanged with that. So <laughs> don't be a dick. I'm sorry. Karma's funny when it doesn't actually like kill someone. Right. It just makes life more inconvenient. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I, I, I wish him to be eaten by a bear or anything, but um, he, he but, gets sued. That's but uh, getting getting as you say wanged by a pay for play scandal. That, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually well, completely actually, cool with that. That's actually a big thing now um, is uh, having to let people know when your services are being paid for. So like if we mention somebody on the air and we have to say, oh, we're being sponsored by them or we're not sponsored by them. So occasionally, you know, this beer, when the guys drink beer, we're not sponsored. But if somebody yeah no I, no I, I I paid for it and just and I'm, and I'm just drinking it nobody paid me to we we will be happy to drink it I was gonna say now however yeah. if anybody is interested sending me some yeah we'll drink it on air we'll be happy I'll to. certainly drink it <laughs> yep kids this is how to make your uh, husband and brother happy just get them beer yeah. yep beer Ice. beer all right so funny enough despite what you know, laws try to kind of stir up. Australia loved Dusty so much so that in 2006, Dusty, the original pop diva, would actually open as an Australian jukebox musical. Really? Based on the life of Dusty Springfield, the book was written by John Michael Halson or Housen and David Mitchell and Melvin Morrow. Dusty received his world premiere on the 12th of January, 2006 at the State Theater of the Victorian Arts Center in Melbourne, Australia. The original production was actually nominated for seven 2006 Heltman Awards, including two nominations in the Best Female Actor in a Supporting Role in a Musical category and won four. So I guess the the, the Heltman Awards are kind of like the Australian Tonys. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, something on that level. Yeah. So, I mean... 
I would actually really like to see that because I do love jukebox musicals. I really like Jersey Boys. Uh, I like Mamma Mia. We didn't see the Billy Joel one. We did yeah. not. That's because we live here, and I don't know. It didn't come here. I, I don't, I don't know. Probably did. Actually. It might have come to the Pantages, yeah. but we we didn't we didn't catch it. But we did see Jersey Boys. We did see Jersey Boys, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay, so in November of 1967, Dusty flies to California for TV work, which includes The Dating Game, Operation Entertainment, and the Joey Bishop, Merv Griffin, and Red Skelton shows. So she just did all the shows. Wait, 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 stop, 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 stop right now. Dusty Springfield was on The Dating Game? I, <laughs> I guess. I guess she I was. Did, did they have musical spots? Because I don't think she was trying to pick up somebody. I don't know. The, you know, there were some weird people through the years on the dating game. Like, wasn't Pee Wee Herman on there? Was he? What? Well, I know. I think I so. I, I, I don't think I, I don't. I don't think I've had enough to drink to make that off. Yeah, Randy Alcala, the That's dating it. game, the dating game killer, was on there. So, you know, they had some weird folks back then. So I don't know. That's that is that is interesting. I I, I would have been less surprised if you told me she was on the Price Is Right and played Plinko. <laughs> oh, I would, I would love to oh see that. Oh my god. The amount of money I would pay for that. Or family feud, like, like hawking bowls of potatoes at each other. <laughs> yeah. All right. So she actually moved to New York by... Big box, no whammies! So after she did all those shows, she then flew to New York. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture Dusty Springfield on pressure. Like, big box, big box, no whammies! It sounds so much like her. I, I can't believe it. Uncanny. Lord. Oh, okay, wow. I'm good. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so after she did all those shows, she moved on to New York and then to a 10-day club engagement and into Bermuda. She doesn't stop. Like not. it's I I, I want to say especially like it's it's more topical since like she's in the news, but it kind of reminds me of what they put Britney Spears through. Just that constant moving, constant going, constantly like jet setting, get to the city, get to the city, get to the do this commercial. Do, you know, because she was with Pepsi and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, she doesn't stop moving. And the thing is, her health doesn't get better if you keep pushing the machine. Yeah. The, the point uh, is that it's a, it's a very unhealthy pace that, that, that she's being, that she's either taking on or being made to keep. It's the path to burnout, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and not just burnout, but exhaustion and, you know, stripping your vocal cords and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if you push yourself too hard, like you get exhausted. People like always made fun of Mariah Carey, but like the thing is, no, you, you, when you're touring, you have no idea where you're at. Like you, you constantly moving, constantly using your voice, having to always be on, always be nice. And I hate this kind of society that's built around the, the people that are famous. They feel like the, the public feels like they belong to them. And this happened the other day where literally Justin Bieber, is going to his house and is accosted by a group of girls. And he basically says, I live here. Please don't come here. Yeah. And I feel like he has every right to say that. Sure. Yeah. Like, but, but, and yeah, you know, and then the, the other issue is, um, and you, I'm sure you'll get into this at some point. I don't know what stuff Dusty was doing, but there are certain tendencies that seem to be prevalent in entertainers that certainly don't help your health and your voice either. Mm. And I don't know if she was partaking in those things or not. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll get there if she did, but. Well, I mean, we know at this point she's at least tried marijuana and she's drinking wine. Yeah, but to be fair, it's the 60s, so that's what yeah. everybody was doing. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't think we've gotten to the, the hard drugs yet. So 
Okay. It, it is coming. It is coming. So later on that year, we have another round of NME winners and Dusty won first place as the world female singer. Here's the thing though. She took 10th place of the world musical personality. Uh, she won second place as the best British female singer. And she came in second to someone else I truly love, which was Lulu. Oh yeah, you mentioned Lulu. Yeah, and you guys probably know her from the seminal song "To Sir with Love," <laughs> which such a beautiful voice, such a great voice, and she is very close with Dusty. She's one of her contemporaries, and from what I understand, they were really good friends. Wow. Uh, she also plays sixth as uh, the British vocal personality, so that rounds out the enemies and, from that year. And if I remember correctly, Lulu oddly showed up in our uh, John Bonham episode as being one of his friends. They were friends? As I recall, did they not, they, did like Lulu and Maurice Gibb and Ringo Starr not hang out at John Bonham's house a lot? I, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you on this because I think I've got an answer for you coming up. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. But just wait. <laughs> the one thing I did fail to tell you guys was that at some point, Dusty really got into the tennis circuit. Huh. Yeah. Not that she ever played really good, but she really liked the players. Um, so I'm going to say one of the most bizarre sentences I think I've ever said on this podcast. All right. This includes the Keith Moon episode, too. Oh, my. When Dusty got back to London, Dusty and Norma would invite Elton John over to meet Billie Jean King. <laughs> Because Elton was only starting out in his career, and we would very soon see his meteoric rise. Well, he loves tennis. Yeah. Loves it. So he got to meet, I think her name is Rosie Casales. I think that's, it's, she's that's, actually where, that, that's actually where Philadelphia Freedom came from. That was the name of the tennis team. And oh, he wrote basically their theme song. Yeah. Huh. Philadelphia Freedom was like the theme song of the Philadelphia Freedom tennis team. Interesting. And from I, what I yeah. know that. From what I understand, Sir Elton is also a very big fan of American baseball, too. He loves baseball. Yeah. Huge Braves fan. Yep. Yeah, sure Interesting. Now, Elton idolized Dusty. He was a massive <laughs> fan of Dusty. When he was a teenager, he had pictures of her up on his bedroom wall. Now, on the surface, they had a lot in common, like their taste in music. Right. They had their love of Hollywood and their senses of humor kind of aligned with each other. But there was actually a more profound connection between them. They had both grown up in the suburbs with a poor self-image. They were both decidedly chubby and plain and cursed with poor eyesight. So they created a different persona for themselves just so that they could get by. And they both had their sexuality. And at this point, Yellow Brick Road hadn't come out. So no. Elton wasn't the Elton we now know. Yes. Yeah. But think about that that idea of two people on the same side of the fence of their sexuality because they're fighting with being true to themselves and who they are and being and and the danger that was being out at this time yeah this period of history wasn't wasn't exactly accepted yeah and both of them over the years would descend into death-defying binges of pills booze and cocaine uh-huh so Elton would actually be a pretty darn good tennis player whereas dusty <laughs> was not <laughs> Uh, she would come out in her dark glasses, long trousers, and she'd take a couple swings and then quit. She'd walk off the court. <laughs> she'd like, and I'm done. Yeah, and I just see like the big beehive, the big 1960s sunglasses, like just sweatpants, just taking a couple swings and just being like, this is not mashed potatoes. And I'm out. <laughs> so even though 
Dusty would appear to be at ease with her music. She actually got a reputation for being very difficult in the studio. Now, this is going to come up a lot in later years with another band that we're going to be talking about. But her sessions would start a lot later than everybody else's would and take twice as long as everyone else's had. And it was just hard for everybody involved. She would tear apart a song note by note and would reconstruct it, spending hours on backing tracks, getting it exactly how she wanted it to sound because she would have what it, she would have an idea of what she wanted it to sound like in her head. She's like the Stanley Kubrick of singers, it sounds like. Yes. She would literally record a song syllable by syllable. So say it, say the word little, two syllables. She'd go lit, and then she'd have them play the tape back. And then she'd do it again and wow. do it again till she got it right. And then they'd have to mix the words together. But see, but at that point, you're aiming for perfect, which is not really attainable. No. But for Dusty, it was. Because if have you heard a live version of her, 90% of the stuff that I've played for you has been live yeah the dick clark stuff is live the well, song we end on i'm actually going to play the live version of it oh, oh yeah. no 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 i mean no look no look she uh, she's immensely talented uh, just a, a phenomenal voice but if you're aiming for perfect in the studio or otherwise you're never gonna find it well i because think when I think we get to our when we get to our next series we're going to at a certain point talk about somebody who is renowned for quote their perfect sounding recording techniques and stuff but it's like it's really almost not attainable because you could always think well you know you could have done this better i think that better i think it's neil young who was also known for that he would go back and play just notes at a time you know picking apart everything well for her it wasn't just the sound of the note it was the tone it was the emotion everything had to mesh right if it didn't sound right to her in her head, like it just wasn't right. Because she would go into recording sessions with a clear idea of what she wanted. And she wouldn't leave until she got that. And I know that can be like a bugger, but listen to the stuff that we've heard. Mm. It's perfect. Like I've got, she's, she's incredible. So moving on from that, she actually had two movie credits under her belt. <laughs> um, in the movie, The Corrupt Ones, and she also had the hit, The Look of Love, which was written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David, of course. That song is notable for its sensuality and its relaxed bossa nova rhythm. The song was featured in something that I want to get your, I want you to weigh in on, okay. Will the Thrill, because it was included in the 1967 spoof James Bond film, Casino Royale. <laughs> Which was, I was surprised to hear that it was a spoof film because now it's canon with Daniel Craig. Ah, it's considered a non-canon Bond film. This, this is an area of, of great interest to me. And for those of you who, who may not be aware, I grew up watching Bond movies. They were my sick movies. I know LD, you had said that your sick movie was The Breakfast Club. Yep. Mine were Bond movies. So that's what I watched growing up. Yeah, the James Bond Casino, the Casino Royale from the 60s is a spoof where it's Jimmy Bond and he drinks scotch and soda. It doesn't work on so many levels, but they obviously did a, a version of it that was serious with Daniel Craig and, of course, the theme song by the late Chris Cornell. But how good would Dusty Springfield have been as a Bond singer? Oh, I'm surprised she wasn't picked. I mean, I, I am too. I, re- I was about to say, Will, I'm, I'm frankly surprised that she she never did one. I feel like she would have been a great fit. She yeah. she should have been placed in that pantheon. She's 
she's on par with Carly Simon Shirley and Bassey. Shirley Bassey. Yeah. And she's, she's incredible. I feel like, you know, guys, you missed the mark, not picking her to be a Bond singer. Yeah. Broccoli's where were you? Yeah. Come on guys. Her third album. And that's right. We're only on her third album. Where am I going with its pop art cover gave her another success with the brilliant I close my eyes and count to 10. That was a song that was supposed to kind of rival her own song, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, with like the emotion and the weight that it had. But at this point, her contract with Phillips in America had expired and she did not wish to renew it. Hmm. So Atlantic Records stepped in and Dusty was thrilled because not only was this the house that Lieber and Stroller had made their home. And if you guys don't know who they are, they actually wrote Jailhouse Rock for Elvis Presley, collaborated on songs like On Broadway, and Stand By Me. They wrote a million early great rock songs. And I yes. see the name coming up, and I know there's a correlation there. Yes. Yeah. But the big thing was, it was Aretha Franklin's record label. Queen of Soul. Yep. It also boasted the Drifters, the Coasters, John Coltrane, along with the Modern Jazz Quartet. So, like, this was a great record label for Dusty. And it's, it was a fit for her. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the producer, Jerry Wexler, who we'll talk about more, I believe, in the next episode, wanted Dusty to fly over to Memphis, where, in his opinion, the best musicians were based to record her first album with them. And I'm not, I don't, I don't know a big difference in the Memphis and uh, Nashville sound. So I'm not. Oh, very, not, very. Though they're very different. Are they? Educate yeah. me, please. Yeah. Okay. Well, Mem- Memphis was your really rough, raw, bluesy R&B stuff. That's, you know, Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and stuff like that. And Nashville's country. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so like Memphis, you're talking like Otis Redding, um, people like, well, and if you want to go back that far, yes, Memphis uh, Memphis would be Jerry Lee and Orbison and Elvis and people like that. But also Booker T and the MGs and, you know, again, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, all the stacked stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then Nashville is just country Hmm. but it's so interesting you say that because boy it feels like coming up here she is going to so delightfully blend those two cities yes she is so at that point dusty at the urging of wexler flew to memphis for 10 days of recording under her deal with atlantic records which was negotiated by harold davidson the album that resulted in those recordings was dusty in memphis Fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. Uh, in 1968, during the Memphis sessions, Springfield suggested to Wexler that he should sign a newly formed UK band, Led Zeppelin. Ah. Oh, wow. How, how did knew, that turn out for him? So she knew the bass guitarist, John Paul Jones, from her session work with him earlier Jeez. on her albums. Remember, he was the bass for uh, her first album. He was a session guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he was and, a session yeah, guy. And page, 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 and, page, and, page and Jones were both huge studio musicians for a while before they joined Led Zeppelin, yeah. Yeah, so without ever having seen them play, on her advice, just on her word, Wexler signed Led Zeppelin to a $200,000 deal with Atlantic, the biggest such contract for a new band at that point. Well, think about how much yeah. they paid, I mean, just off that first Of album. course, they, all, they also had a... Um, a manager who was a like a six three three hundred pound former professional wrestler who was always carrying a gun. 
I'm sure that may have had something to do with it too, but Dusty probably, you know, good word from Dusty certainly didn't hurt. Yeah, but I mean, like, sight unseen, this dude signs Led Zeppelin because he's got so much respect for Dusty. Yeah. Wow. I'd say she was, she did him okay on that deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna say she she did well. That Led Zeppelin band. Yeah. So Dusty in Memphis is the fifth studio album by Dusty. The album was released on the 18th of January, 1969, in the U.S. So uh, she recorded it in 68 released in 69 and um i didn't i don't think i wrote this down but at this point a, a song is making the rounds and two people did their own versions of the same song one of them was dusty springfield the other in 1968 to produce a song that was the exact same song was janice joplin oh wow oh huh. and at this point in time that this is not uncommon at all no, Dusty actually. For there to be almost competing versions of the same song, or for somebody to record a song and like literally months later somebody else would cut it, like that was not uncommon at all at this point. Yeah, I think the original song was 1967, and Janice and Dusty both picked it up in '68. I think Janice's version actually came out first. And if you guys don't know the song, we're actually talking about a uh, piece of my heart. I don't know that I've ever heard Dusty's version of it. Uh, should we Omaha? Uh, we might. I think we have to. Omaha, Omaha, Omaha. Omaha has been called, guys. Yep. All right. I'm, I'm audible. Okay. All right. So here we go. Will, Omaha. line up in the slot. LD, line up wide. Omaha. All right. So according to our rules, if someone calls Omaha, we must take a knee, take a stand. And here we go. This is Dusty Springfield's version of Take Another Little Piece of My Heart.
so I'm not going to ask the obvious question, which version do you like? I'm just going to ask you, what is your opinion of Dusty's version? I liked it. I think part of part of the deal is, is that Janice's version is so ingrained in my head because I've heard it a million times and I've never heard Dusty's until literally just now. Something about it doesn't sound a thousand percent right, but I, I think it's because of comparison and what I'm used to hearing. It was good. I, I, I mean, I would tell you, I probably like Janice's a little better there's, there's, because it's a little more, hers is a little more bluesy and a little more rock because you've got the piano bringing it in instead of the, of the guitar and you've got the really like the, the like janice holds those notes a lot longer you know because when, when she what i just heard is take it instead of take it yeah instead of really leaning into it and stuff i mean it was really really good you haven't played anything yet where that i didn't like and that i don't uh, where I, I don't think just sit and go like god listen to that girl sing man yeah. but um probably i mean probably i would t- i would probably tell you i like janice and big brother and the holding company's version a little more but it but it was really really good and it was cool to hear kind of a different take on it yeah it, yeah, and what what about you, Will? Yeah, it is really hard to shake the Janice version. I mean, this one's just kind of more refined, you know. It, and again, the vocal a little a little more lush in places. Mm, yeah, the layered vocals and all that kind of stuff. I feel like it did have more of that kind of Motown feel to it, you know. Than I mean, Janice is a rock song. There's no debating that. Uh, this just kind of struck me as like again a little more refined is the only word I can think of. But the vocals are just really clean and it, it it comes off really well. I will say I like I love both versions, mm-hmm. but let's let's rock this back just a couple years ago. What version do you think of when you hear the song "How Do I How Do I Live"? Oh yeah, it's a what, what, sure your one is that right? Okay, yeah. T. I mean, I I think it's Trisha, but I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's kind of the same thing as the Trisha Yearwood, Leanne Rhymes, or is it? Mm. Yeah. 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 Leanne. Okay. So originally, if you guys don't know the, the backstory of that, Leanne Rhymes was approached to do it and she recorded it for the song, for the movie, Con Air, starring Nicolas Cage. Your favorite actor ever, <laughs> right? My favorite actor of all time. I love you, Nicolas Cage. Um, but when they got the finished product, they thought it sounded too immature yeah too immature not not enough body to it so they approached trisha yearwood and trisha did it her version ended up in the movie i think if we all think about that song i always go to trisha yearwood because that's that that's the version that i am most ingrained with because you know i've watched that movie a ton of times (laughs) but i think it's the same thing had you heard dusty's version first that might be the one that you lean toward now knowing both versions i will say i love both versions for different reasons janice is dirty and rocking and like it's nasty hers is way nastier yeah i mean that's that's and it's much more of a it's a rock song what we just heard like will said a little more clean refined r&b version with you know a lot of some there were parts of it that had like like these almost like lush layered like horns and, and and backing vocals and stuff and janice is just just belting the damn thing out you know yeah so i mean it's just kind of probably just you know and again it's hard to it's hard to get her version out of your mind because that's the one I've heard my entire life. Right. And uh, for me, I feel like Dusty's is kind of more sultry, sexy, and refined. It's cleaner. And so it's just, it depends on, do you want to be dirty? You want to be clean? You want to, you want to rock? Do you want more like, you know, that, that lush horn section and like, you know, it's, it's really your taste. Well, it boils down to it. Both of them were insanely talented. 
sure. both had beautiful, unique voices. And I mean, yeah, if I, I can't, I cannot hate either one of you for leaning toward Janice. I totally get yeah. it. So now, yeah, but, but Dusty's is really good. I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Dusty in Memphis is the fifth studio album by Dusty. The album was released on January, 1969 in the U S by Atlantic and Phillips records. So Phillips actually distributed the records outside the U.S. To make the album, Dusty worked with a team of musicians and producers that included Jerry Wexler, uh, R.F. Mandon, uh, Tom Dowd, and then conductor Gene Orloff. The backing vocals were the sweet inspiration, and the bassist was Tommy Cogbill and guitarist Reggie Young. Uh, upon its release, Dusty in Memphis actually sold pretty poorly. Well, I just want to go back. You said the sweet inspiration. Yes. That was Sissy Houston. Yes, it was. So link up there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, as I mentioned before, some of her parties would include the Houstons mm -hmm. coming over and, and you know, uh, throwing applesauce or whatever. I, yeah, I was going to say. I don't think Sissy might have done that. I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think she would have done that, but they were there for that. So, so Dusty and Memphis sold poorly upon its initial release, but now it is acclaimed as one of her best works and one of the greatest albums of all time oh, wow. yeah i'm gonna butcher this guy's last name and i'm so sorry uh robert christgau 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 yep from the village voice oh yeah. robert christgau dean of um of music journalists or American one of rock critics yep certainly got it well he called it the all-time rock era torch record Huh. and included it in his basic record library of 1950 and 1960 recordings published in his record guide the album of the 70s and in 2001 it was inducted into the grammy hall of fame oh. in 2020 the album was selected by the library of congress for preservation in the national recording registry for being culturally historically or uh, aesthetically significant that's just last year this was last year huh. in its official release the library stated that despite its modest sales when it was first released over time dusty in memphis grew in statue to become a wildly recognized as important album by a woman in the rock era. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. The albums included Windmills of Your Mind, Just One Smile, So Much in Love, and one of the greatest songs, in my opinion, ever laid to track. That song was Son of a Preacher, man. It really is. Oh, yeah. Fabulous on so many levels. In 1968, songwriters John Hurley and Ronnie Wilkins, who had recently had the hit Love of the Common People, wrote the song with Aretha Franklin in mind. Huh. According to a 2009 interview with Wilkins, Atlantic Records producer and co-owner Jerry Wexler, who was recording Dusty Springfield's first Atlantic album, which was Dusty in Memphis at the time, liked the song and suggested it to Springfield for that album. So the writers of Rolling Stone magazine placed Dusty Springfield's recording at number 77 among the 100 best singles of the last 25 years in 1987. Hmm. The record was placed at number 43 among the greatest singles of all time by the writers of the New Musical Express in 2002. And in 2004, the song was on the Rolling Stone list of 500 greatest songs of all time. In 1994, the song was featured in a scene in Pulp Fiction. Yes. Son of a Preacher Man helped to sell over 2 million units of that film soundtrack and helped to reach number six on the charts, according to SoundScan. Quentin Tarantino has been quoted on the collector's edition of the DVD of Pulp Fiction saying, 
that he probably would not have filmed the scene in which the song was featured if he had not been able to use it. There's so much going on there. And I think for those of you who may not, and, and TJ, I'm sure you remember this because you were there at that time and they were formative years for you. <clears throat> how big that soundtrack was. It oh, was yeah. ridiculous. And I, I have to say this also is at that point, my friends and I were basically little metalheads. We were listening to Megadeth and Metallica and Pantera. Sure. Me and here all of us sitting around listening to Son of a Preacher Man. Yeah. We were just or listening to Urge and Urge yeah. Overkill covering Neil Diamond. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But that soundtrack was massive and that song was so instrumental. I don't know how that film, that scene or that film could have existed without. So if you guys don't know where it takes place in Pulp Fiction, the scene is our introduction to Mia Wallace. Could you imagine the movie without the introduction of Mia Wallace? We would not have gotten the confused Travolta meme. I mean, that notwithstanding, just setting up who those characters are, again, he walks in, she's on the microphone, right? Yeah, you don't yeah. see her face, you just mm -hmm. see the back of her head, and then you see a close-up of her lips. Yeah, just, it's a great way to introduce a character who's got so much mystique around them anyway. It's, it's the horror movie rule of don't show the monster, yep. but they do it with that character really well. Yeah, so the song has also been featured in the film Enron, the Smartest Guys in the Room, during the scenes depicting Kenneth Lay, ex-Enron CEO, and who was the son of a Baptist minister. Mm. And in episodes of Hindsight and Luke Cage, neither shows of which I've watched, but Hindsight actually seemed to be like a really interesting one. I, I remember the picture was a girl's back and it had tattoos all over it. Yeah, and then Luke Cage, which is in the Marvel Universe. So in 2008, episodes of the American series, The Office, titled Baby Shower, featured the song <laughs> as a lullaby to her newborn baby daughter, Astrid. Later in that same episode, uh, Jim describes the bizarre scene to his fiance, Pam, saying that the song is about losing your virginity next to a church. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, not wrong. You can't say it's wrong, yeah. Yeah. Samples from Son of a Preacher Man were also used, and I didn't realize this, they were used on Cypress Hill's Hits from the Bong on their album Black Sunday. Really? Yeah, and it was also featured for gamers out there. The video game Mafia from 2016 also featured Son of a Preacher Man. The original Mafia? It had to be one of the 2016, so it's got to be the follow-up. So, uh, Mafia, yeah. Mafia 3. Oh, the third installment. The okay. third installment. The single was released in late 1968 and credited as Son of a Preacher Man on UK, US, and other releases it became an international hit, reaching number nine on the UK charts and number 10 on Billboard's Hot 100 in January of 1969. Dusty would undertake a 10-day promotional trip to New York, which includes appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Mike Douglas Show, and The Merv Griffin Show. But of course, one of the greatest performances would take place on The Ed Sullivan Show, <clears throat> where she would perform Son of a Preacher Man. I'm actually going to play you guys that to close out the show, but before that... I'm going to turn it over to Will the Thrill to give us all our socials. Ladies and gentlemen. Oh, listen to you being a presenter. I know. Look at this. Maybe you thought this was one of the best podcast episodes you have <laughs> ever heard. Not a chance. Or maybe you think, gosh, these people need help. Why don't I give them money? Whatever the case. Lord, Lord help them. Maybe they could get yeah. some training if yeah. I gave them a Please, few dollars. Yeah. Help these poor <laughs> people can, out. They can get diction lessons and maybe a little Jesus in their life. Yeah, exactly. Right. Maybe just a case of Red Bull. I don't know. 
But either way, you can contribute to what we do here at Rock and Roll Heaven. You can be part of the ongoing saga by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. We do have a Twitter account. Twitter! Conveniently titled Rock and Roll LT. And we do have an Instagram, which we are very active on, Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook can be found at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. I am still not saying our website. Oh, very nice. Did you feel like you needed to do it all creepy because you couldn't do it for man I, I, for man? I know because, well, TJ does it so well. I'm just yeah. I'm taking notes here. It is good. Anyway, you want to talk? Email us. We do have an email account, rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. We get emails from people who listen to our show and bring up discussion which, points. Which would be weird if we got emails from people who don't listen to our show no. but know our email. Well, well, we did from this nice Canadian company offering me pills that will enlarge my... I, okay, uh, okay, moving on. Yeah, so Vocabulary? Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> very much so. And check out other awesome podcasts. We are a proud Pantheon podcast. You can find Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. If you uh if you gave us a dollar for every time you just said Pantheon, we'd have four dollars. That's a that's four dollars. That's, <laughs> that's almost a gallon of gas out here. That's a thing in gelato. I like gelato. <laughs> yes, we are a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. So $5. check out all those amazing other shows uh at our Pantheon family. And T, do you have something you want to say to the audience? Bye, buddy. All right. <laughs> Toodaloo. All right. So now I'm going to close the show with one of the greatest performances that took place that year. Now, it should be noted that the Ed Sullivan show had kind of already been the unofficial kickoff of the British invasion by having the Beatles on his show. I believe it was February 6th. So she actually came in in this place with that. The the performance that I'm going to play you actually took place on November the 24th, 1968. So uh, she beat the Beatles in uh, charting. They beat her to Ed Sullivan. To Ed Sullivan. Hmm. So I don't ever think there was an official rivalry between them, but definitely it feels like there's a race going on. So uh, I'm going to leave you with that performance, which took place on November 24th, 1968. This is Dusty Springfield on the Ed Sullivan Show with Son of a Preacher Man.
Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. That symphony of engines roaring in perfect harmony. It's a feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, Jerry. Oh, my word. Really, really terrible. Was that a glockenspiel, Jerry? Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Uh, Now, Jerry, it's over. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.